0: So I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, if you're not already there. This has been, for me, a text that has got me praying a lot. I mean, I think I pray pretty regularly as I'm preparing a sermon, but for whatever reason, this text, for me, has been stirring, and there's really been three... Things I've been praying for as I've studied this text, and I just want you to, to hear what's been going on in my own heart as, as I've studied this. First, I've been praying that this next section that we're looking at, verses 6, it'll really go all the way to 16, although to this morning we're only going to look at 6 to 10. I've been praying that this text, which describes a faithful servant of Christ Jesus, would first and foremost take root in my own heart. I've been praying for my own soul to be conformed to the truths that are here, where clearly Paul is giving Timothy directions for how to be a faithful minister of the gospel. Now, I want to be a faithful minister of the gospel, and so I've been praying that this would be true of me, but but that's not all I've been praying. This very much has implications for all of us as a church family, and so I've been praying for you. I've been praying specifically that God would use this text in your life to produce a surge of spirit empowered training toward godliness. Effort. Toward seeking and pursuing holiness in your life. That there would, as a result of this, be an inordinate amount of productivity in our lives as we pursue the Lord with all our hearts. I've been praying for that. And third, I've been also praying that the Lord would use this time in this text to plant in the hearts of some of our people here seeds that maybe down the road and in the future would result in them taking stands for truth in such a way that they want to move forward as gospel ministers themselves. I'm praying that this is one building block toward us becoming a church that sends future missionaries, future pastors, future elders... Planters, revitalizers, that this text so captures us, that it so motivates us, that it becomes this paradigm that we live in where we think, how can I be a good servant of Jesus Christ? And the fuel then spurs us forward to say, Lord, I will go where you want me to go. I will be what you want me to be. I will take a stand in leadership if necessary for the good of the gospel, for the sake of the church. I will move whatever it takes, Lord. I am your faithful servant. I hope that this produces that. I want you to look at verse 6 with me. Paul's writing to Timothy. says, If you put these things before the brothers you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. There's a condition. If you do this, Timothy, this is what you will need to do to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is laying before him. Timothy, I want you to be a good servant. And here's what you need to do. That word servant is diakonos. We encountered it first in chapter 3, verse 8, where it was referring to the office of deacon. This is not referring to the office of deacon. This is referring to the more general sense of that word, a a servant or a minister in general. The same idea as a table waiter, someone who sees himself as a servant. And what Paul's saying is if you want to be this kind of servant, this kind of minister of Christ, there are certain things you need to do that you need to put, do you see what it says? You need to put these things before the brothers. Brothers, Adelphoi in Greek, it could refer to the whole church family, not just the boys, not just the the men in the church, it's referring to the church family, and he is saying that this is what you need to do, there are certain things, these things, that need to be brought before the church on a regular basis, if you want to be a good and faithful servant of Jesus, make sure you're like the table waiter who brings the right stuff to the people. The determinative factor for becoming a good servant of Jesus Christ is are you being faithful to bring what the church needs to them on a regular basis? And we'll find that it's not just to get the doctrine right, though it is that, and it is very much so that, but it is also to give them and to put before them a life that matches the doctrine then he needs to put this before the church if he wants to be faithful he needs to put this before the church what do you think when you think of a good pastor a good minister of the gospel what to you is the the rubric you use to evaluate what a good pastor is it's the size of his church he's got a big church he's got to be a good pastor is it it the number of books he's written number of radio programs he appears on how many places he's traveled, how many podcasts he's been interviewed on, how many Twitter followers he has. Is that the the measure of a, a faithful minister? We'll see that those are not the things that Paul says. And I love that it's so clear what is given as the rubric for a good minister of the gospel. This is what you need to do to be a good and faithful servant of the gospel. Now, I told you already, I've been praying that this would first and foremost shape me. Because this is, first and foremost, given to someone who's in leadership over the church. Paul was writing to Timothy. Timothy was providing leadership for the church in Ephesus, and he, as the leader of the church, needed to hear this so he would be a good and faithful servant. However, the principles that you're going to find here apply to every Christian who wants to be a good and faithful servant of Jesus Christ. So if you are here, and you're thinking, you maybe you came to church, and you're wondering, hey, how can I be a good servant? How can I be a faithful minister of the gospel? That's a good thing to think, by the way. Well, here's your answer. We're going to get it here. There are things that you need to adopt as your own and you need to give to the church family. There are things you need to own. There are things you need to understand. There are things you need to live out. There are habits you need to have in your life so that you will be free to offer to the church what they need. Now, I want to remind you of the context in chapter 4, verse 1. Do you remember this? He's talking how to be a good servant in verse 6, but you've got to remember the context. You know what he's talking about in chapter 4, verse 1, is the reality of apostasy. Remember this? Uh, he says this in 1, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Some will turn away from the faith. They'll defect by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. He's saying that in latter times, that's today, we've defined the later times in the New Testament as being the time after resurrection of Christ up until he returns. So right now, in this church age, there is going to be a lot of defection, a lot of people abandoning the truth. And now Paul has to correct the theology of that in verses 3 and 4 and 5. These false teachers were teaching things that were destructive and undermining the gospel. But now he turns to Timothy. He says, that's the doctrine they got wrong, and this is the correction for the doctrine. But Timothy, here's what you need to do to put away the potential of apostasy in the church. Now, there's nothing that anyone can do to totally seal up the back door of the church so that no one ever defects. Those are things in God's hands. But isn't it true that churches that are led by and filled with hypocrites tend to produce more people who get sick of that religion which they come to think is, is only a shell and there's no core reality? Isn't it true that when there's moral scandals in a church that the people who are brought up in that church just grow disgusted by what that church represents and often even leave not only the church, but will leave their professed faith in Christ? Isn't it also true that the churches that are just very superficial when it comes to doctrine. They just don't give hard answers to hard questions. That those tend to produce shallow Christians who, in the end, are actually no Christians at all. That don't have roots to stem the tide when storms come in. And so, when a Hurricane Katrina devastates their city, or when their so-called Christian parents get a divorce... Or when some tragedy happens and it hits close to home, they don't feel that their Christianity has any answers. And so they depart. In other words, the, po- the point I'm getting at here, church, is that churches that don't care about the integrity of the members of that church, the leaders of that church, when there's no concern about the moral integrity of the body, the believers, and there's no concern about truth and sound doctrine, those churches tend to become cesspools of apostasy. That you grow up in that church and you say the people are hypocrites, The, the there's no answers for hard questions, I don't know if I want this. And so what Timothy is being given by Paul is if you want to fight against affection, we all do, don't we? If you have kids, you don't want your kid to walk away from what you are professing right now. You want to do everything you can, everything in your power to make sure that they grow up loving the truth and loving the church, don't you? Well, what that means is that you want to be a good and faithful servant of Christ, which we find here in verse 6. In the following verses that give us answers how we are to be good servants of Christ. We don't want our lack of integrity, our lack of doctrine to be the reason why people abandon the faith. So let's read the whole thing. And we're going to find that there are critical characteristics to the good servant of Jesus Christ. Critical components to the life of the person who would be a good faithful, a good faithful servant, a good faithful minister of the gospel. Let's read it, verses 6-10, to and then we'll see these three critical components. Verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. These three critical components come out in this text that will make us, if we do them, into good servants of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the first critical component. Here it is. The good servant of Christ is nurtured in the truth. The good servant of Christ is nurtured in the truth. See that word in verse six? Being trained. Being trained. That word trained in some translation is nourished or nurtured. It has less to do with a physical regimen or exercise. The word trained in the following verses is actually a different word that refers to that. But this word refers more to the idea of being trained up like a child is trained up. It's like rearing a child to, to understand certain things. Timothy In order to be a good servant, must be nurtured by, nourished in, trained up, reared up by Scripture and by sound doctrine. The idea, as strange as this might sound, is that Timothy ought to see himself as a child, and Scripture is his father, sound doctrine is his mother, and he is learning from them, he is living in their home, he is being raised by them, See, leaders in the church, according to First Timothy, are to be able to teach. They are responsible to be people who present the truth to the congregation. And so they ought to be nurtured by it, growing in it, eating it up, taking it in, letting it fill their minds so that it affects their hearts. It goes on to say, and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Again, some translations will say followed closely because the idea of that word followed is like a historian. It's actually used by the the writer Luke when he's talking about how he wrote Luke and he wrote Acts. He talks about how he followed closely the lives here so he could write a detailed account. Well, this is the idea of how we ought to follow doctrine. This is the idea of how you have to follow the scriptures. Imagine you're a historian trying to learn exactly how someone lived, what they thought, what they prioritized, how they valued things in their lives, that kind of attention to detail. Timothy is being told that, hey, if you're going to be a faithful servant, you need to give that kind of historian's detail eye looking at the word so that you can understand it to that degree following closely, inspecting diligently, researching thoroughly. Do you want to be a good servant of Jesus Christ? you want to be a part of helping this church be a healthy place, a greenhouse where children and new converts are raised in the truth to love the truth and to live out the truth? Let's all be lovers of truth. Not just feeling it in our minds, as we'll see here in a little bit, but being nurtured by truth, nourished by it, hungry for it, loving it, paying attention to it. You see, some of us think that being faithful in ministry or being effective in ministry is all about putting in your back pocket a few key verses that you can kind of give out whenever there's a need. Um you got a few verses, you got a Romans road memorized. That's good. Uh, I am not knocking the Romans road. You got your four spiritual laws, you got a collection of verses and they're like pills for each sickness. I got this for you, I got that for you, I got this for you. But what, what this is talking about is is not that, that that's bad or that it's wrong. It's not that at all. He's talking about something much deeper. Something that you you feed on the word so that it nurtures you. It is filling your mind, it is filling your heart so that the overflow of your heart, comes out in conversation and it is filled with truth, life-giving truth that you yourself feasted on first and now out of the overjoyed love for this truth you can give it to others and they can sense the value of it. A servant of Christ must be a student of scripture, must be a lover of the word. A servant of Christ, a minister of the gospel, must be trained in the words of the faith. That's what he says. Trained in them, nurtured by them, and of good doctrine. Friends, one of the scourges on the American church today is a kind of carelessness about what's true. Right? Our country certainly doesn't know any reality in terms of what's true and what's not true. And often that mindset creeps into churches and we become careless about what's actually true. We can even become relativistic where that's true for you but it's not true for them and it's not true for me. But we are people who believe that there is revealed objective truth. And if we, as a church, if pastors or elders are unconcerned the the, the pastor's putting together slapdash sermons based on half-baked theology, that we build our church on the pragmatic business practices, what works best. We are going to create a place that is not a healthy environment to raise our kids, to raise up Christians. We can't be careless about this stuff. Don't believe the lie. that to, to, To know your doctrine is to be unloving. Don't, don't, don't believe that lie. To to actually have convictions about things is to be unloving. Doctrine and love are married and happily so. Because you can't love someone rightly or well if you don't know what's true. And so we have to know the truth in order to love well. In fact, if you were to go back into chapter 1, go back and see this yourself. What is the whole point of Timothy's ministry? What is the whole point of Timothy's ministry? Over and over again, we are told that doctrine needs to be corrected, that doctrine needs to be preeminent, that truth needs to be proclaimed, that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. But look at verse 5 of chapter 1. The aim, the end, the goal, the whole point of our charge is love. Do you see that? Why do we labor to understand theology? Why do we labor to understand texts and apply the truth to the congregation? Here's why is that we won't know how to love unless we know the truth. And so truth becomes the platform for love. And truth produces love. When we understand what God has done for us in Christ, it produces love. So practically speaking, the minister the good faithful minister of Christ is a man steeped in words, trained in the words of the faith. Words are his life. He is to spend time studying words. He is to understand words. He is to craft words. He is to understand and apply words to his own life so he can help others understand and apply words to other people's lives. The words of truth have been revealed in the Scriptures. He is to be a man of books. He is to be a man of reading and study. And first and foremost, of course, is the inspired books. The 39 Old Testament books, the 27 New Testament books, that is the field that he will plow all the days of his life. It is the mine that he will excavate again and again and again as he labors to understand what God has revealed so he can feed the church of God. But I also think that he will not only limit himself to just reading Scripture, he will read other books that help him understand Scripture. A faithful minister has got to understand the Word of God and he will take help from people he can get help from. Now, Paul is actually a tremendous example of someone who was so devoted to study that he would go to great lengths to secure for himself books so he could study. It's actually biblical. I want you to see this. Go to, go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy, I think you might know already, is the last book that Paul wrote. He's in prison. He's months before, it's months before he dies. And in chapter 4, he's writing his last words. (laughs) He's writing his last words. And he has some final requests. Verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas... Winter was probably coming. He needed to get warm in a dark and cold prison cell. He wanted his cloak. But look what he also says. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus Etros, also the books. (laughs) I love this guy, Paul. Um, Bring the books. And above all, the parchments. He's in a prison cell. He's about to die. It's getting cold. And he's saying at the end of his life, bring me books because I'm not done studying. I'm not done learning. If you want to be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ, you will be a learner. You will be a studier. And you will study the Word of God first and foremost, but any books that you can bring in to be tour guides to help you understand this book better, you will make them welcome friends in your life. I can't say it any better than what Spurgeon said on this text. He, he, he says kind of humorously, he says this, he's inspired and yet he wants books. He has been preaching for at least 30 years and yet he wants books. He had seen the Lord, and yet he wants books. He had had a wider experience than most men, and yet he wants books. He had been caught up into the third heaven. He had heard things which is it unlawful for a man to utter, yet he wants books. He had written a major part of the New Testament, and he wants books. The apostle says to Timothy, and so he says to every preacher, give thyself to reading. The man who never reads, he goes on, will never be read. He who never quotes will never be quoted. This is my favorite little line, he says. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. A carpenter will buy wood and saw. A fisherman will get his pole and his net. A good and faithful minister of the gospel will use his books to sharpen his mind. To inflame his heart. To help him understand. He will get books and they will be like good friends to him. They will be like companions to him. They will be around him and they will help him understand this book. That he will read books by people who walked near to Christ. And who on the pages they burn so brightly with love for Jesus that in reading them, the flame is caught up in his own soul. This is why I happen to like what the scholar in the 1500s said, Erasmus. He said, when I get a little money, I buy books. If any is left, I buy food and clothes. Or what my seminary professor used to say, sell your shirt, buy a book. Not sure what Ashley thinks about that one. But it's central. And I would commend to you, even if you have no aspirations to be a leader in the church, I would commend to you the reading of good books. That if it's hard for you, I would say to ask God for help. To do it in a pace that you can do it. And to don't make it a matter of legalism where you're better off, or you're a better Christian for doing more books, or you're worse a Christian for doing less books. But I would commend the practice of doing your best and doing all you can to get before you literature that helps you understand this book and apply it to your life. We prayed for the men's equipping group this morning. Uh, Some of them in that book have been doing reading. Lots of pages. Uh, We have read as a group, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, John Piper, Mark Dever, J.I. Packer, Wayne Grudem, Jerry Bridges, J.C. Ryle, and some others. Uh, Some of the women in our church have read Jen Wilkins' book, Women of the Word, and then they've gotten together to study the Bible together. This is great And it helps us as a church grow in a depth of understanding for what God has said is true, but also helps us apply it into our lives. Hey, Timothy, Paul says, hey, you want to be a good faithful servant? You want to be a minister of the gospel? Be trained, nurtured, nourished in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. Be in the book. Live in this book. And visit other books that help you understand this book. That's the first component for a faithful minister is they are nurtured in the truth. But secondly, the second critical component is they are trained in godliness. Now, there's a danger in what I just said, and I'm going to admit that. That we become so bookish that we forget to love people. That we become theological eggheads that we don't have time for depth of relationships or walking with people who are not yet at the level of theological understanding as we are. That would be a travesty, and that would be a misuse of what this text implores us to do. Because look at what is said next. Chapter 4, verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Godliness. So if you thought it was all just about the mind and getting information in your head well here he's saying you need to be nourished in the truth you need to be trained in the faith the words of the faith but all that you know and all that you're learning you need to then get on a regimen of training so that it translates into godliness. Train yourself for godliness he says for bodily training is of some value. It is. It's good to, to train yourself bodily. Do that. It's It's good. But then he says godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. He's he's now presenting a regimen. And I already noted that the word train here is a different word than the word train in verse 6. In verse 6, it has to do with being raised it is, has to do with getting good nutrients. But you know that being a good runner is more than just eating right. If all you did was eat right, but you never actually ran, it wouldn't make you a good runner. And so here he's saying... You have to be feeding on the right stuff, the good nutrients, being trained and nourished in truth. But listen, you gotta get out and exercise all that you're learning. You gotta put into practice because the word train in this verse is gymnazo in Greek. What word do we get from gymnazo? Gym, gymnasium, gymnastics. There's physical exertion. That's what this word has to do with. Physical exercise, discipline, strain. If you want to be a good servant of Jesus Christ, not only are you intaking truth so that your mind and your heart are being fed, but then you're getting to work and you're putting extraordinary energy into taking what you know and applying it to your life. Pursue the application of the truth you know in the, into your life like an athlete pursues a title, like an Olympic runner pursues the gold. Reorient your life so that you can run well, run hard, train well. See, what, what we're meant to be training for is, is godliness. We, we are meant to get on a regimen to get committed to godliness Holiness, righteousness, that means this. That means that we are to get on a training regimen that helps us think biblically, feel biblically, and act in obedience to what the Word of God has revealed. How have you thought that you become godly? What what does it take from you? What kind of effort have you put forth in your own life? be honest, of all the things you've trained for or are training for right now, how much do you train for godliness? I don't think there's anything in your life that's more important than being godly. I don't think there's anything in your life that's more important than putting to death the sins that are entangling your life in pursuing Christ with all your heart. I don't think training for a job is as important as that. I don't think training for a certain career that you want to have is as important as that. Or training for a certain race that you want to run is more important than that. Those things are all good and fine. They have some value. But there's nothing that compares with the value of being a godly person. Because this has value, as the text says, in this life, but in the life to come. Have you thought that you could become godly and put forth no effort? (laughs) Have you thought that like almost everything else in our culture, that you could get instant godliness? That you could get it microwaved and handed to you like a TV dinner? Here's godliness. Did you think that you could get it in three easy steps? Did you think you could get godly by Friday if you just do this, this, and this? See, this is what it's saying, is that godliness is the result of training. You see that? Training, exercise, physical, exertion, spiritual, mental, exertion. Extraordinary effort. You want to be godly. Do you want to be godly? Here's what Paul would say. Get to work. Get training. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen instantaneously. It happens as you put your known to the grindstone by the grace of God, in light of the grace of God, and you start training for godliness, taking what you know, applying it to your life. What's the opposite of such training? What's the opposite of such discipline? You know what it is? It's drift. And that's subtle. In fact, some of you might be in the middle of the drift right now and you wouldn't even know it. I remember when I was a kid going to a river and I jumped in at one part of the river and I was swimming and I was having a good time. I wasn't paying attention to where I was. I suddenly looked up because I wanted to swim back to the shore and I was 30 yards away from where I got in. I didn't have any idea. Maybe that's what's happening to some of you. Listen, friends. There's no neutrality. There's no neutrality in following Jesus. You are either training for godliness and growing by His grace into more godliness or you're drifting. If you do nothing, you don't just stay in the middle, you drift. And so you might be even drifting now and my prayer is that God would use this to wake you up and say, am I even putting any effort? Am I putting any effort, any sweat into growing in godliness? Now, some of you might begin a little nervous because you're going, hang on, salvation's by grace, Eric. What's up with all this effort talk? What's up with all this effort talk? I thought salvation was by a merciful God who saves us by grace and not by our efforts. And let me say, yes, amen, salvation is by grace alone apart from any of your works. Your works will not get you an inch closer to heaven, an inch closer to God, in terms of your salvation. That will not happen. But the works that he's talking about here are not to attain salvation. These are the works that you do, listen, because you have salvation. This isn't to attain grace. This is because you've tasted grace. This is because you understand what it is to be forgiven by God and made his own child. And you say, yes, Father, I will do what you ask out of love. I will regimen myself to become more a faithful student in, of your word so I obey it more freely. Oh Lord, I will not, I will not be lazy in my pursuit of you. It's not legalistic to pursue godliness. And don't let anyone tell you it's legalistic to be serious about a spiritual regimen that helps you become godly. Uh, Listen to Paul. Paul was not lazy when he talked about his own spiritual growth. Listen to Philippians 2. You could jot this verse down. Go look at it later. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have also always obeyed. So now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Listen to this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You've got salvation. Now work it out, is what he's saying. But if you want even more proof that Paul was an extraordinarily hard worker in his pursuit of godliness, look at 1 Corinthians 15.10. You say, okay, Paul, help me understand. Did you become godly? Did you become what you are because you worked hard or because of grace? Watch what he says. Verse 10. 1 Corinthians 15. But by the grace of God. Okay, Paul, it's grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Guys, I don't think Paul knew what it was. <laughs> I do know this. He, he he would say, It's all grace. It's all grace that I am the way I am. It's grace that saved me. It's grace that strengthened me. It's grace that enabled me to pursue him. And yet he will also say in the same breath and in the same sentence, But I worked harder than any else, anyone else. That's what I did. And this is what I can then commend to you. It is the grace of God so that God gets all the credit and yet you are obligated by Scripture to pursue godliness with all your heart. Put forth the energy. It is not a lack of belief in grace that makes people lazy. It's a misunderstanding of grace. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. How do you describe your own pursuit of godliness? What word would you use to describe how you are pursuing godliness? Rigorous, determined, inconsistent, feeble non-existent. How are you doing? Let this be a good conversation later on this week with someone you trust. And let this be an opportunity for you to talk to someone and say, I haven't been doing much. And I'm realizing that the gospel is so good, that Jesus is so worth it, that I can maybe change some things about my life to make me more a disciplined Christian. I I can maybe wake up a little earlier, I can maybe get on a Bible reading plan, I can maybe commit to meeting with someone on a regular basis so as to hold me accountable, to do the things I say I should do. I want to be faithful, and I want to put some effort into this. If you want to be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ, and anybody who would ever even think about leadership in the church must, without exception, be someone who is training for godliness. See see training has value it says it has value for the, uh, the for the future life because you're you're investing in heaven but also has value in this life you'll be a more effective and fruitful christian as you pursue godliness in your own life you ever seen someone play piano effortlessly it's a beautiful thing go to a concert and that person is just free flowing those fingers are flying here and there and there and you think this is amazing how could they do this You should also think in that moment, as free as those fingers are, that there were hours upon hours of regimented discipline that got them there that you don't even see. Under the bright lights, all you see is the free-flowing performance of someone who has mastered the skill. But behind the scenes, there were early mornings and there were late nights and there was regimented discipline to get a good handle on that piano. So when they were standing before they were sitting, before the crowd in the bright lights, they didn't let everyone down. How are you doing when no one's looking? How are you doing pursuing the Lord? How are you doing training yourself for godliness? Because you're training in private. You're training before you in God in the way you pray, in the way you study, in the way you listen, your training in those moments will be the degree of your fruitfulness in public. You cut off all the private training, you'll only be able to fake it for so long. But if in your private life you are attached like the man in Psalm 1, like the tree by the flowing water. You're soaking in the nutrients. You're living in the truth. You're taking it in. It's, it's shaping your heart and your mind. You live there. When the time comes for you to come to church, you've been worshiping all week. And now you come and do it publicly and with people. And listen, there's effectiveness in that life. Because it doesn't become a show on Sunday it becomes the overflow of who you actually are. So are you training yourself for godliness? Are you training yourself for godliness? You might even wonder right now. Well, how do I even get the motivation to work like this? Where does this come from? It's the is in the text and it's our third point. I want you to read verse 10 with me, look at this for to this end this end this this end of godliness, this purpose of godliness for to this end we toil and strive again, two words that describe the agony of pursuing godliness for the, to this end we toil and strive because here it is guys, you see it? do you see that little word? you've got to notice this stuff when you're reading scripture. How can we toil and strive? We toil and strive because, you see it there? Here's the answer. Because we've set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Listen, the only reason you will have any motivation to pursue godliness will be if you understand that your hope is not in this world, but it's in the living God. If your hope is not in the living God, guess what? You will not toil in this life for godliness. You will not strive in this life for godliness. Why? Because you will begin to believe that this life's all you got. And so your life will be characterized by, listen, your life will be characterized by a pursuit of comfort, pleasure, And ease. And you will begin to find that the decisions you make are all based on what will bring me comfort, one will make my life easy, or what will bring me pleasure. Why do you do that? It's because your hope isn't in heaven. Your hope's in this life. This life's all I got. I gotta make it everything it can be. So I'm not gonna discipline myself. Now I'm not going to get up and train myself for godliness. Now this life's all I got. I'm going to get all the pleasures I can. Now. Are the decisions in your life made primarily around what is going to bring me most comfort? Did you choose where you would sit this morning based on what would be most comfortable? Did you choose what house you live in based on what would make your life most comfortable? Did you choose what time you would wake up or how you would spend your money, all based on what would make your life most easy? As we do that, if that's how we're living, it's a big red flag that should cause us to ask, Where's my hope? Because if my hope is on the living God, the Savior, if my hope's on Him, I'm free from trying to get everything from His life and I'm free to work hard for godliness because my eyes are set on the celestial city. The heaven is my home. That's where my mind is. And so I can be free with my money, I can be free with my time, I can be giving my life in rigorous devotion to others and sacrificial love. See, the path to freedom in godliness is discipline. Training yourself for godliness. But you know the path to enslavement is? It's a comfortable path. A comfortable path and, and you take that path and you will be eventually enslaved to ease you see this though when your hope is set on the living god you can toil that word toil has the idea of a farmer waking up early working all day going to bed late That word striving is where we get the word agonized from. It's the Olympic athlete. He's running the race. It's the final stretch. He's putting every effort into pushing himself forward so he can cross first. Those are the words he's describing to, to, to talk about how we ought to pursue godliness. But you're only going to be able to do that if your hope's in heaven. If your hope's on God. Maybe... Some of you have not yet set your hope on the living God. How would would you know that? You're trying to evaluate yourself? How would I know if I haven't set my hope on the living God? You may be going through jobs, one after another. You may be going through partners, one after another. You could be going through churches. One after another. This is just one stop along the way. You could be going through hobbies. You could be going through styles. You could be going through cars. You could be going through locations where you live. And the root of all that could be that you're trying to scramble in this life to find something that you think will give you uh, something that will satisfy your soul. You're setting your hope on these things. They're not coming through, so you go to the next one. But the one who has settled their hope on the living God is secure. Rooted. And because we're secure and our eternity is secure, listen, we toil and we labor in this life for the good of others because we know there is an eternity of comfort and rest that awaits us. And so if you haven't, Set your hope on the living God. Here's, here's the good news. It's that you're guilty. <laughs> you're guilty of sin before the living God. And you're worthy of condemnation. That's what the Bible teaches. But God, in His amazing love, has promised to save anyone who repents of their sin and believes in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for their forgiveness of sin. Jesus lived, He died, He rose for sinners, and He now offers hope. Secure, rooted, everlasting, and eternal hope for anyone who trusts Him. So you will have your soul satisfied. And you won't need to go from thing to thing and person to person and place to place looking for something that will satisfy because you're going to be satisfied in God, in Christ, in the forgiveness of sins, in the new purpose He gives to your life and the power He enables you to live for Him. He brings confidence to the weak and weary and strength to those who come to Him and wait upon Him. Listen, if you haven't yet, bank your eternity on Him. Put it all on Him. Bank your soul on Him. He will forgive you. He will bring you in and adopt you. And your hope will be finished and final and secure. And guess what? You can now begin to work, not for salvation. No, no, no. But because of salvation. You'll begin to work for godliness, not for grace, but because of grace. You will be so enamored by God's grace in your life that He would forgive a sinner like you. He would wash you clean. And that He would actually want to use you for His purposes. You'll be so enamored and overjoyed at that reality that you will then put effort to being His servant. Oh, if I would be pure and clean and an instrument in the Redeemer's hand, that would be my greatest joy. You'll say things like that. The paradox is that the people who are most heavenly minded are the people who are the most earthly good, spiritually speaking. Have you forgotten about God, our living hope? God, who is the living God, the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Have you forgotten about heaven and the promises He's made to us? Have you forgotten that this life is a vapor? It'll be soon over And you will be entered into eternity. Forget about those things. You're going to have a really hard time being motivated to discipline yourself for godliness. Keep those things before you. Keep the hope of the living God before you. Wake up and think about that God is alive, that He sent His Son, died, rose again for sinners, that He is alive. Keep that before you. And out of the gift of salvation and your love for Him, then get yourself on a training regimen for godliness. And if you don't know how to do that, talk to someone who's here in this room with you. And they would be happy to help. Don't forget about who our God is and what He's promised to us. And we'll finish with what C.S. Lewis said. He says this, I must And I hope we have the same attitude. I must keep alive in myself the desire for the true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for this present world we're just those who thought most of the next. That's pray. So, Lord, we come and confess that we are a forgetting people. Quick to forget your promises. Quick to forget that you're the living God. And so we don't toil and strive. We don't train ourselves. We become pretty happy and content here. Comfortable and ease sets in. And so, Lord, we confess that but say, Oh, Lord, open our eyes to the brevity of life. Open our lives to the eternity of heaven. Help us to see what You've called us to do and be here and now. Lord, as I've been praying, as we've been praying, pray that this truth, these truths would stir in us so that we become a people who are giving extraordinary effort not to try to earn salvation, but because of it. That we are training ourselves for godliness because we've set our hope on the living God. Do more than we could ever imagine or ask or think for your glory.